What we're going to be doing for the next months leading up to Easter is zooming in on the very best news there is uh, that's found uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to be unpacking that week after week uh, after week uh, and trying to create a foundation really to live in the good of it in our own lives uh, and also helping see how it is still good news for our city. So that's the plan. But before we get into that, I've got a little bit of a quiz for you. You up for a quiz? Yeah, some of you are. Okay, so here we go. No Googling this. Uh, so if I see any phones out, uh, uh, I'm not going to ask you for the answer. Uh, I'm going to try and guess the top four best-selling British novelists of all time. So we're going British novelists of all time, the best-selling ones. Any ideas? Shout them out. Tolkien. He's in the top 20, but not the top four. Oh, I know. Okay, well, we'll ask for a show of hands or else it will go. Uh, Millerad. Any sort of novelist. So Shakespeare uh, wouldn't be... Uh, he, Shakespeare would be well out ahead, but he's not a novelist. So, yes. J.K. Rowling slots in at number four. Okay, so round of applause there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. C.S. Lewis is a brilliant guess, and I would have said C.S. Lewis, but not in the top four. Jan. Dickens, uh, good guess, you would have thought so, but not in the top four. Barbara Cartland, one of Millerad's favourites. Uh, number two, Barbara Cartland has sold a billion, a billion novels. Uh, J.K. Rowling, 500 million. So we're looking for the first and the third. Jane Austen, good guess, but no. Agatha Christie is in first place. Round of applause there. Four billion, four billion novels sold uh, around the world by Agatha Christie. So in third place, uh, my favourite as a child. Enid Blyton, that's right. Round of applause for Verity. Uh, Enid Blyton, uh, 600 million novels sold. So there you go. Agatha Christie, Barbara Cartland, Enid Blyton, and J.K. Rowling. Now you've got to wonder, why are people so enthralled by these stories? Why have so many millions, if not billions, of these novels sold around the world? Why is it that not only children but grown men and women throughout the world tear through these books over and over again, year after year after year after year. Well, don't know what you think, but I'd suggest it is at least in part because they speak to deep human cravings. Uh, I think we crave transcendence. We crave purpose and meaning. We crave love. We crave resolution. We crave for good to triumph over evil. We crave beauty and justice. More than that, I think we want to find our place in a wider plot line. We, we kind of crave for our lives to be part of a bigger story. Or to put it in another way, we're desperate to find a story in which to belong, a story of transcendence in which beauty shines and love is known and good wins out in the end. In fact, to take it just a step further... I'd argue that every human being actually finds a story to satisfy these cravings, whether consciously 
or not. And this goes beyond simply liking stories. I think we live stories. We lean into them with our lives. So even if you're not one for reading books, and maybe you've never read any of these authors that we've just shouted out, We still all imagine ourselves within some larger story of humanity. We all have a story that we believe makes some kind of sense of the world and these deep longings inside us. Secular humanism is a story. Capitalism is a story. Buddhism is a story. Even atheism is a story. I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a much quoted line in a novel by a guy called Julian Barnes, I think just offers this fascinating insight into what I've just been saying. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. As a sociologist, Charles Taylor put it, it's as though Western culture is haunted by the memory of God. And so, although the culture around us has largely moved on from the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, we we simply don't believe in a world anymore, do we, where dead messiahs come back from the grave on the third day. I mean, we don't believe that kind of stuff anymore. It's like we, we now have science and technology and Wikipedia. Now we know so much better. Now we know for sure that dead people stay dead as if that was so much easier to believe back in the first century. I mean, everyone believed that, of course, back then. But still, even though we laugh it off as like this kind of superstitious hangover from a former age, still our world is haunted by the memory of another story, a better story, a story that is still good news for the whole world. And that is the story that, as I've been saying, we're going to be exploring over the next four weeks in the build-up to Easter. Today, we're simply going to look at it through the eyes of the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth. Now, if you're new to the Bible, the last third of the collection of books that we call the Bible is referred to as the New Testament. And the New Testament is made up of this group of writings that grew up around Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the most prolific writers in the New Testament is a guy called Paul. He was this rabbi, this teacher back in the first century who was originally incredibly hostile to all things Jesus. But when he had this personal, powerful encounter with Jesus back from the dead, it kind of changed everything for him. And he became one of the most passionate followers of Jesus and turned all of his knowledge and his learning, his education into working out the implications not only of Jesus' life and all of his teachings, but also of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we're going to be camping out in for this next little while, 1 Corinthians 15 is, I think, his most in-depth teaching on the whole subject of resurrection. Now, sadly, uh, time doesn't allow us to read all of it today, but we are going to read a pretty good chunk of it. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, 
you believe something that was never true in the first place. Now, what is this good news by which we are saved? Well, if we keep reading, verse 3, Paul says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Here it is, Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, and right now all of them have died, but when Paul was saying some were still alive. <laughs> Verse 7, then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, Paul says, I also saw him. So that is Paul's summary of the good news. Basically, Jesus died, he was buried, and then he was raised from the dead on the third day. And we know that he's alive and back from the dead because a whole bunch of people saw him with their own eyes. They saw him in person. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice here is that Paul says that all of this happened, I don't know if you notice this, just as the Scriptures said it would. First of all, I want you to see that this good news is part of a much larger story. It's part of a much larger, a much bigger story. The story that starts actually all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 and stretches all the way through the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus. It's a story that's very different to the predominant stories in our culture, very different to the story of secularism or Buddhism or atheism or whatever. It begins with God creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, rather frustratingly, it doesn't tell us how or when, but we are told that there's a creator and that what you and I inhabit is a creation and that God then created human beings as like these go-betweens, these intermediaries between him and his creation, not as merely another animal but as rulers over the animal kingdom in a healing and life-giving kind of way. In other words, God created us to live these lives that are full of meaning and purpose and dignity. And we're told that he created us male and female. In other words, God designed gender and sexuality with marriage given as this sign that we were made for love and relationship and community. But if you know the story, you'll, you'll know that there's this tragic breakdown where Adam and Eve gave in to the age-old temptation not only to seize autonomy from God, but to decide for themselves what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's truth and what's a lie. And when they gave into the lie, when they gave into evil, when they seized autonomy, when they said to God, thank you very much, but we're now okay by ourselves, we'll, we'll take it on from here. And when they decided to write God out of the story of their lives, at that moment, death entered into the story. But even in the storyline gone wrong, death is not the end. Even in the grave, according to Paul, we merely sleep and we wait for what he later calls resurrection. 
Now, if we skip down to verse 12, we'll see how Paul starts explaining why the resurrection matters so much. He says, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? And so, although there are all kinds of opinions about life after death in the ancient world, the Roman world that Paul inhabited was basically secular. There was no thought of an afterlife whatsoever. And so, this thought that death is the end was just as much around in Paul's day as I think it is in ours. But Paul's saying, that cannot be right. Verse 13, for if there is no resurrection of the dead then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless too. And we apostles would all be lying about God for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. I love Paul's brutal honesty here. He admits that if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then he and all the other leaders in the church, they're just a bunch of liars. Not only that, but without the resurrection, death is the end. There is nothing to come except the cold, dark abyss of non-existence. And to cap it all, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, all of his followers, including those who follow Jesus in this room right now, hate to say it, but we're the most naive, the most gullible, the most stupid people alive on the planet right now. But, on the other hand... If the story is actually true, then what Paul and his friends are saying is that it's not just true for them, it's true for everyone. And death is not the end, it is simply the beginning. And followers of Jesus are actually onto something that isn't just hope for them, it's hope for the whole world. So do you see, there's a whole lot at stake here, which is why this stuff matters more than anything else. And then Paul turns his attention to what Jesus' death and resurrection really means for us. Let's look at it in verse 20. Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And so Paul's saying that what happened to Jesus will one day happen to all of Jesus' followers. Death, 
followed by burial, followed by resurrection. That's how it goes. Death. Sorry to break the news to you, but you and I will die. Uh, I mean, the, the stats on death are pretty conclusive, like 100%. Uh, the, the odds really aren't in our favor here. We're all going to die. Then we'll go into the ground or our ashes will be scattered, but then we'll be brought back from the dead. Uh, our soul will be brought back into our body and our whole person will be transformed in an act of recreation. It'll be like Genesis chapter 1 all over again. And then, we're told here, all of humanity will stand before God to answer for the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, God isn't merely some kind of abstract idea. Now, He's our Father. We've been adopted into His family. We live in relationship with Him as sons and daughters. And in that moment, there won't be fear and trembling for us, but joy and celebration as we see this smile on the Father's face and we step into this brand new world, not up there in heaven somewhere, but here on earth. You see, contrary to popular belief, Resurrection doesn't mean going to heaven when you die. It's living with brand new resurrection bodies in a brand new recreated world. But that's not all. Paul goes on to say in verse 24, after that, the end will come. Now, Paul's not talking here about the end of everything. I think he's talking about the end goal of all history, what it has all really been heading towards. Verse 24, he says, after that, the end will come when Jesus will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the Scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority, of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God the Father himself who gave Christ his authority. Verse 28, then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his Son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. That's the future for you. That's the future for the rest of humanity and the whole of creation. And so for Paul, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection isn't just relevant for Easter time. It's not just a little bit of hope for you on a Sunday. No, it's hope for your body. It's hope for life after death. It's hope for all of humanity. It's hope for the planet itself. It's hope for the universe. It's hope for everything, everywhere. That There's coming a day when there'll be no more fatal stabbings on our streets. No more suicide. No more depression no more loneliness, no more manufacturing of nuclear missiles, no more drone strikes, no more global warming, no more anti-government protests, no more votes on Brexit. Hallelujah. All of it will be wiped away and creation will come back under the rule and reign of God 
as it was in the beginning. Mark Sayers, a writer and cultural commentator from Australia, he puts it like this, Jesus' life on earth points us towards the future. His actions are clues showing us how the story of creation will continue in the future. Jesus' healing of the disabled points toward a time when humans will be healed physically and mentally. Jesus' deliverance of those possessed by evil demons points to a future when evil will be expelled from our world. Jesus' feeding of those without food is a glimpse of a future world where there'll be no hunger, no poverty, no starvation. By turning over the tables of the merchants selling religious products in the temple, Jesus shows us that the future will be a time when our worship of God will not be compromised by corruption and greed. Jesus' honoring of women, Samaritans and children speaks of a time when no humans will be marginalized. Above all, Jesus' resurrection speaks of a time when death and suffering will be defeated and the world will be resurrected. Sadly though, most Christians miss these illusions living as we do under the shadow of the hyper-real world. I think it's true, isn't it? In the midst of everyday life, I think a lot of us, a lot of the time, miss this. We forget this. We, we don't live in the light of this hope. It's like we get sucked into the here and now and sort of end up living by an alternative gospel. For example, there's the gospel of materialism, like more money and more stuff equals more happiness. Or there's the gospel of marriage and family, like all you need is a spouse and kids and a house in the suburbs, and then you'll be happy forever. There's the gospel of fame. All you need is more Instagram followers and more likes on Facebook, then you will know true acceptance. There's the gospel of science and technology, like our powers of discovery and invention provide the capacity not just to destroy ourselves, but also to save ourselves. There's the gospel of education, the enlightenment of the human mind, that the, the more knowledge we have, the better we'll be. There's the gospel of sexuality. Really, I think that's pretty much the dominant gospel right now. It's like the highest good in human flourishing is sexual pleasure. And it's our right to have it whenever we want, however we want, with whoever we want, as long, of course, as there is mutual consent. I mean, keep your laws off my body, because my body is mine to do with as I want, and anything that limits me is repressive, and if you dare to limit me, it's oppressive. But I'm not sure any of these alternative gospels are really good news. I'm even less sure that they're saving us right now. I mean, Beneath the veneer of all the apparent progress that we think makes us superior to every other generation that's been, are things really any better? I mean, look at the increase in knife crime that's linked with more and more pupils being excluded from our schools. Look at the eye-watering debt 
that we're all raking up. Look at the homelessness and the underlying reasons behind it. Look at the racism and the fear and the anger that's just bubbling away beneath the surface. It's absolutely tragic. Mental illness through the roof. Loneliness at epidemic levels. Arguably, we're the most depressed civilization ever. There's a whole lot of disillusionment, a whole lot of disappointment. For so many people, even if you're beautiful and smart and popular and wealthy, it is still not working. There is still this feeling gnawing away deep inside. There's got to be something more than this. All those extra followers or likes on social media, that sexual encounter, that promotion, that new house, that cheeky Nando's, that latest iOS update, none of it satisfies for long. I think if we are willing to just stop and pause and consider this honestly, surely we've got to admit this isn't much of a gospel at all. Might be good news in the moment, but not in any lasting, permanent way. Listen, I think we know deep down that the gospel of our culture isn't the answer. It's a story, but not the story. It's not the interpretation, it is an interpretation, and just maybe it's not the right one at all. So let me ask you, which gospel are you believing? Which gospel are you believing? Are you putting your hope in sex and money and science and education and knowledge and fame and family, your career, or are you putting your hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Which I hasten to add, despite the apparent demise of Christianity here in the Western world, is actually still very much alive and well and growing, if not exploding, all around the rest of the world. I mean, come on. Surely we can all agree together that the great hope for our world isn't government right now, or education, or science, or business. As great as all of that stuff is, and just to say we're for it as a church, many of us give our life to one of those vocations. I don't want to knock it at all. It is necessary for human flourishing. There is good in all of it, but it's not ultimately where our hope lies. You know, instead of looking into ourselves for the answer, the more we look into ourselves, the more we see probably we're actually the problem. Greatest problem in the world, it remains the human heart. It is bent in the wrong direction. It's bent to seize autonomy from God, to define our own version of good and evil, and we get it wrong over and over and over again, which is why the world is so incredibly broken. It's like we write God out of the story because in our pride and our arrogance we think we don't need him anymore but all the time our great hope is found in Jesus. Ultimately our hope is rooted in the reality that although life is hard at times, I mean really hard at times, brutal, And although there is no utopia this side of Jesus' return, 
we can still link into his story and wait for his return when he will make all things new. Do you see? Our hope comes from connecting into Jesus' vision of human flourishing, where we learn that we live and we breathe and we have our being in relationship with him. And this hope grows as we find our place in this brand new community that he's forming around his life and his teachings, which we call the church. There really is hope for the future as together we look forward to his return to make all things new. Are you getting the message? Jesus' death and resurrection is an absolute game changer. It means that there is now this colossal hope for the future that is nailed on guaranteed. And in the meantime, there's a whole new life for us to embrace. And it's full of joy and it's full of peace and it's full of rest because we're set free. We're liberated from the need to keep searching for salvation in things that can never ultimately satisfy us. Don't know about you, but I'm here today not because I work for the church, although that might have a bearing on it, but I'm here today because I find Jesus to be so compelling and so incredibly beautiful. But let's be honest, tomorrow morning is a battle, isn't it? It's a battle not to be sucked into the here and now. As the day-to-day pressures bombard me, it's incredibly hard not to just think about this life, which is why the problems and the issues and the hopes and the dreams of this life so often end up just consuming me. But the gospel, and in particular the death and resurrection of Jesus, causes me to lift up my head. Yes, I'm I'm to live fully present in the moment, but at the same time I live with an eye over the horizon. I'm living out of an alternative story. I, I go through every day remembering that this life is not all there is. There's more. There's forever. This body, this pain, this doubt, this challenge, this pressure, this unanswered question, this tension that I carry ultimately is not forever. The struggle with my flesh is not who I am. It is not the defining characteristic of my life. It is merely a light and momentary thing in the language of the New Testament that one day will pass away. And when I'm fueled by that kind of a robust, grounded hope in the resurrection, then it slowly but surely enables me to live in hope and joy in the here and now. So the question I want you to go away and consider seriously is simply which gospel are you believing? Which gospel day to day are you living in? Are you believe in the gospel of our culture, where you're constantly chasing the next purchase, the next accolade, the next sexual encounter, the next holiday, the next you fill in the blank? Are you living as though there is nothing after you die? Just eat, drink, and be merry. Squeeze as much pleasure out of this life because this life really is all there is. Or are you living out of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? This life is not all there is. There is so much more. 
And not just more for the future, but more for the present. More than just the material, there's the spiritual. More than just the body, there's the soul. More than just me and my friends, there's God and my community. There's so much more. And the call, the invitation of Jesus to all of us, myself included, is to believe it. And by believing, I don't just mean kind of nodding your head and agreeing. I mean basing your whole life on it, finding your place in this story and living out of it every single day. I mean, what would happen if day to day you actually lived as if the gospel were true? If you actually believed the gospel were true, not just with your head, but with your whole life, what would change? You know, right now, the call of Jesus is for you to believe. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's someone in the room or a few in the room who need to believe for the first time. That This is your first experience of seeing Jesus as he really is. The, the call to you is to simply believe. Or, or, or maybe you're hearing this for what feels like the thousandth time. But nonetheless, the call still comes to believe to base your whole life around this reality. Because you know what? Jesus is back from the dead, and that changes absolutely everything.